Hey, good morning, everybody. It's great to come to a missions conference like this. I, I love hearing from other missionaries and finding out what God's doing in other places. It flavors my thinking, it flavors my teaching, it flavors my preaching, so it's been great to see missionaries. It's also great to be back at Edgewood. Karen and I have been involved in three church plants over the years, and you know, we always leave before it really, really gets fun because the role of a church planter is to work yourself out of a job. So as the church is small and is growing with 50, 60 people, we're involved with mentoring and training future deacons, elders, and pastors, and eventual missionaries from that church. But before it really gets going, uh, we typically say, love you, and then we leave. It's a hard thing to do. It's neat to come to a church like Edgewood because I think if Karen and I were to stay at a place longer, we would create something just like what you have here. So it's neat to kind of come and see a finished product of something we didn't really have a hand in. But to, to see the kids up here, man, I was, re I was weeping and ready to just close in prayer after they sang. You know, when, he, when they sing, make my life an offering, God hears that kind of thing from kids. Um, you have an amazing future, but I'm warning you, as a church planter, you're not gonna fit in here very much longer. You gotta stop inviting friends. You gotta stop leading people to Christ. All evangelism is canceled from this point on because you can't fit. Not. Um, so you're gonna get ready to maybe plant a daughter church. You say, we can go to two, three services. Let's build a bigger building. Let's not. Let's plant more churches. Chick-fil-A is here. Eat more chicken, plant more churches. Got it? Okay? There's work to be done. And, and as great as Father Jeffrey is, no, he didn't tell me to say that. As great as he is, as great a, a speaker, teacher, preacher, there are other guys out there that God is already equipping, maybe sitting right here, that your leadership can develop and you can send them out and create new churches. I don't know where they need to be. You guys need to do some strategic planning in that, but it's been great to be with you. Uh, if you've not been here, what I've been trying to do is really emphasize the point that God is changing the world. And what is happening is the gospel is a wildfire spreading throughout the world. We are a very small part of that. America kind of used to lead, be on the cutting edge of missions. Now we are getting left far behind. We are moving from pioneering missions into partnering missions where we are equipping the body of Christ into places that the gospel is spreading like a wildfire. People are coming to Christ by the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and so we're trying to understand our role moving forward. We talked about tent making on Friday night, how 60,000 tent makers are now out doing gospel ministry, helping out in church plants around the world. People in the marketplace, bringing their engineering jobs and whatever to Thailand, to other places, to work together with vocational missionaries. Yesterday morning, we looked at making eternal investments and how important that is and getting involved, not only here, but especially for those who leave, you're really ramping up your investment in eternity for rewards. Last night, we looked at dialogue with doubt, the increasing, creeping, insidious view of Western culture that is atheistic agnostic, but even worse, apatheistic, that really doesn't care so much about God. It's here, 
It's going to come thicker and faster. The middle ground of spirituality, the Judeo-Christian worldview in America is disappearing. And we're going to the right and to the left. Welcome to Europe. It's that way in Germany. It's that way in the Netherlands where you have a strong, truly committed church. And you've got an absolutely godless culture. And so the dynamics, you're, you're going to have to be standing for Christ. And you're going to stand out and you're going to look very different. Whereas before we could kind of all blend in in this kind of a gray goo. It's not going to be that way anymore. This morning, I want to give you one more piece of information. It is a philosophy of ministry based on the ministry of Jesus. Can't go wrong there. <laughs> I hope you can use it here. I hope it shapes and flavors your thinking, particularly for missionaries that are already doing this. It's going to be a little bit familiar to you. But for those of us from more conservative church circles, uh, it might be a bit of an eye-opener. So the threefold cord. The picture I have on there is the very quick uh, picture of a bubble bursting. That is because oftentimes when you come from a place like America, American suburbia, you kind of view the world as one thing. And actually the world is very different. And when you get out there, your bubble tends to burst and you tend to see how different it is. I get a little nervous with ivory tower theology. Uh, I, I was a lawyer years ago, and we could always tell in law school the professors who had never actually practiced law. <laughs> because you get a professor, it was great, because he'd say, okay, everybody got this theory? Now, that's not how it works. Let me show you how it works in real life. And then they would go and show you what was different. Many times in theology and in Christian circles, we have people who write big books, thick books, and they have famous names, and they talk about things that they have never lived with and mingled with, and they are taking it from a biblical text. I understand their, their fervor, but I also think that they don't get out much. The world out there is a very different place than what we might suppose. We are going back to South Africa. South Africa is a very diverse culture. We've already heard this morning how it seems that the whole world, there's a diaspora of all ethnic groups around the world. So our mission is planting the first evangelical church on the island of Venice in perhaps 1,600 years. Not one Italian involved. We're all Filipinos. That's weird, you know. Um, South Africa, we have red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in a sight, and we've got all of them. Even in our small churches, we've got multicultural, multilinguistic, uh, and the leadership potential is phenomenal as they reach out to different areas around 70 77% of the body of Christ right now is in Africa, Asia, and South America. So if you're a white person, that means that if the rapture took place right now, the people that look like us would be in the vast minority. 77% of the body of Christ is in the global south and the global east. But in that same realm, 95% of their pastors have little or no theological education. Uh, it's a tough world. We are going back to South Africa. This is where we worked before. Pretoria and Johannesburg, an area of roughly 10 million people. We were involved in two church plants there, one on the north side of Joburg and the other on the south side of Joburg. The primary thing we do is train leaders. I just feel like if you train your leaders for ministry, church planting will happen. The church will outgrow its, its 
boundaries and will just keep multiplying itself. But we are moving this time down to Durban, South Africa, and the model of missions is a little bit different. There's Durban. South of Durban is a town called Amanzimtoti. Now, that's a great Zulu word. It just means sweet water, you know, like they have in the South, sweet water. You know, we just call it Amanzimtoti. You can even say it with a Southern accent. It's not bad at all. And there is a church plant there planted by ABWE. That's the Association of Baptists for World Evangelism. We have three teams, our mission, BMW, like the auto manufacturer, Biblical Ministries Worldwide. We work together with ABWE on three different zones in South Africa. It's really awesome how we have this partnership. Um, and we are also partnering with a third outfit, but Grace Baptist was planted by ABWE. What they are looking to do in this GG2 project, Grace Generation 2, is to plant several churches. The most notable of which, and we'll get back to in a second, is the Seven Rivers Outreach. Uh, it's one river that you cross seven times, three times over, four times through. So it's four by four territory. That's one of them. There's another one up in Umlazi. There's another one in Umbumbulu. Doesn't that just feel good to say that? Umbumbulu. That's, that's what your wife says before she's had her cup of coffee in the morning. How are you? Umbumbulu. Okay. Also in Fulueni and in Hiberdeen. Hiberdeen, Hiberdeen, is, Hiberdeen is scary, guys. Um, and for those of you missionaries like the one we heard from our brother in Thailand this morning, you'll understand this. Um, we're trying to plant new churches in the, the upper four areas, all at the same time, training leaders on the fly. We're creating an accredited seminary, which is like a, kind of like a Bible college, fully accredited, um, going to be addressing the Zulu in their worldview, in their, their cultural milieu. But um, in addition to that, one of our guys spoke at a funeral. When you get invited to African funerals, especially if you are this color skin, you're always asked to speak, even if you don't know the guy who died. Strange. But our guy was willing to, and so he stepped up. He just read a verse and explained a couple of points out of God's word. And the African pastors came to him, and they were like, you know the Bible? Yes. You can teach us the Bible. Yes. Me and my teammates. There are more of you? How many? Uh, five. And two more coming. Oh, we must have you meet with the bishop. The bishop? Okay. So they got together for coffee, and the bishop says, I speak for 110 South African pastors. They have no training at all. Can you come and train our people? Uh, we were looking forward to training like five guys, maybe 10 guys, but we're getting invitations now. These guys have been in ministry for years. Maybe 20% of them know the Lord as their personal Savior. They're in churches that teach all kinds of stuff. So y'all pray for us. We had not have much experience with 110 African pastors. But that's down in Hiberdeen. We'll see how that goes. Um, quite some challenges that are ahead of us. So Grace Baptist, the seminary on wheels, servicing these five church plants. Seven Rivers, uh, again, we'll take a look at it at the end. But it involves a farm on which the pastor will live and make most of his living, and then we are trying to create a self-sustaining orphan village on a 100-acre farm. So I'm not just recruiting Bible teachers. I'm recruiting uh, carpenters, welders, nurses, uh, teachers. Uh, we got all kinds of ways that you can get involved in this project. 
So, yeah, 110 African pastors. Really, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. When Karen and I go back, we are going back at age 58. This is our third missionary journey to South Africa. Sounds biblical. Um, and we are going to be learning the Zulu language at age 58. This is not easy. Now, my wife is already trilingual. Um, I'm moderately bilingual. But we have never gone into the Zulu world. Now, most of the letters and words that you see are pretty honest. You know, what you see is what you get. Like, amanzim toti, it's just straight up. But they do have three clicks in the language. So the X is like giddy up horse. So out the side, everybody. Very good. Wow. Oh, we have a place for you in Africa. Okay. <laughs> the Q, the Q is a pop from the front. So like click. Oh, oh, praise God. So many workers. Okay. And then the C is like a tisk tisk sound. Okay. Very good. You've got this down. Now, <clears throat> Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela was from the Osa tribe. Osa. Osa. See, it's easier to click, but when you say it as part of a word, it's like, uh -huh. my brain doesn't do that. Osa. Or, that's a frog. Okay, good. So next time your child misbehaves, you make him pronounce this word 10 times. Okay, so the Q is a, so Iganda, Iganda. Again, hard when it's part of a word. C is this, so this is Inela, which is please, Inela. So we will come back in three years and absolutely wow you, or we'll come back in one year with our head between our hands and uh, not knowing what we're doing. Let's take a look at God's word. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 9. And we're going to look at verses 35 to 38. Matthew chapter 9, 35 to 38, a favorite passage of mine. I'm going to read all the way to verse 38, even though um, only 35 is on the slide. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, normally, verse 38, or 37 and 38, are part of every missions conference. But actually, that's not the focus of what I'm talking to you about this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at verse 35 more closely. Let's have a word of prayer. God, our Father, we come to you in Jesus' name as he who is our creator. You are our creator. You are our redeemer. You are infinite mind and infinite love. And your grace has extended to us. We gather together this morning as your children here in this place in Edgewood. And we call to your name, great Jehovah, to bless us by your spirit, who is present within us and among us as your people. I pray that you would open to our hearts and our minds an understanding of the scripture and an understanding of a way to do ministry. I pray that Edgewood Bible would be different as a result of this morning and that we ourselves would be better committed to keep a balance between 
these three aspects of ministry that are each so important. We ask you this in Jesus' name, amen. So I wanna point out, within verse 35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. You're gonna see three things. There they are. Teaching, proclaiming, if you have a King James, you'll see the word preaching, and compassion, okay? These are the three elements, what I call the threefold cord of gospel ministry. The big picture is gospel ministry. Not the gospel message, but gospel ministry. When we are involved in ministry, these three things were present in Jesus' life. Let's take a closer look at them. The first is teaching, which equals basically moral instruction. Jesus was known to come into a town, right? Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he came in, he sat down, he taught the people, or he went out onto the boat and talked to the crowd that was on the shore. And Jesus would say, you have heard that it's been said, do this, but I say to you, do that. And so he was giving them moral instruction. Uh, it's a very good thing, common thing, to teach morals, what is right and what is wrong, in church, to gathered believers. But I want to remind you that Jesus did this in public, it's kind of interesting to brainstorm as Edgewood, how could we actually get involved in moral teaching, not, not teaching morality as a way of salvation, but moral teaching in the public? Because that way, you kind of, those who have a heart to follow God tend to, be, tend to gravitate toward that thing. Others tend to gravitate away. So Jesus was involved in teaching. Also, he was involved in preaching or proclaiming the saving gospel. Now, let's be clear. What I'm doing this morning is technically called expository teaching. If you're from a traditional church background, you call this preaching. And oftentimes when we go to seminaries and Bible colleges, they call this preaching 101, preaching 102, learning how to preach. But that skews the whole meaning of preaching. In the scripture, preaching is simply authoritatively sharing with someone what the gospel is. In almost every context that you see the word preaching, you'll see the word gospel. Okay, so ladies, you meet someone down here, down the road at Starbucks, an unsaved friend, and you just start kind of transitioning the conversation and talking about Jesus and talking about the gospel. You're preaching. You don't even have a fancy suit. You don't have a zippy hairstyle. Um, but you're preaching. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. So in that sense, preaching is for everybody, men and women. Okay, don't get, don't get going on it. I'm saying when it comes to the gospel, sharing the gospel, that's for everybody. Don't get stuck in a rut, please, where you say, oh, my friend's starting to ask questions about God. I better bring him to Pastor Jeff. Pastor Jeff shares the gospel because he is a Christian, not because he is a pastor, okay? It's for everybody to be doing. So Jesus went, and it's interesting, he proclaimed the saving gospel of himself and his kingdom. He talked about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. It was wrapped up in himself. Preaching the good news. The good news is not just you need to be sincere. The good news is not that you just need to get back to God somehow. The good news is not that you can be in whatever religion you are and if you really wholeheartedly believe that, that you'll please God. Preaching has to do with the gospel, has to do with salvation, forgiveness of all of our sins, from the cradle to the grave, pretty amazing. 
all at one time because we transfer that sin to Jesus' account and he transfers his righteousness to us. That's called salvation. That's the gospel. That was the second element of what Jesus was doing. Thirdly, was compassion, helping those who are suffering. Now, Jesus did miracles. We can't do miracles. I mean, I've tried, but it just doesn't seem to work really well. And a lot of people are like, hey, when Jesus did miracles, he was proving that he was God in human flesh. Okay, no, I, I get you. I follow you on that. But follow me in that virtually every miracle Jesus did was helpful to people. Okay? I mean, there are a lot of ways to prove that you're God. Like, okay, tornadoes dance in the desert. <sighs> it's like, look at those. See those tornadoes? How about two sticks singing to each other in your hand? Those are called tricks. They might be miracles, but they're not helping anybody. You don't see Jesus saying, whoa, look at this, you know, take a selfie of my singing sticks, you know? Uh-uh. He wasn't about just proclaiming and showing who he was. He healed people who were hurting. He raised the dead, like the son of the widow of Nain because she would have been destitute without him. He had compassion on people. And so while we can't do the miraculous element, we can certainly help those who are suffering. And so I call this the threefold cord of gospel ministry. Um, borrowing from Ecclesiastes 4.12, that a threefold cord is not easily broken. The cord, the hemp rope across the bottom of the slide is a threefold cord if you take it apart. And so that's what I'm going to be talking about this morning is this threefold cord of ministry. So there they are. It's as if you took a hemp rope and you cut it straight across and you look straight down the rope. It has these three strands. So the gospel work is a threefold cord. And when Jesus came into town, you never knew which one Jesus would start with. And you never knew how many Jesus would do during his visit. Sometimes he would come in, start with the gospel, and then move to healing. Other times he would come in with moral teaching and then move to healing and not, according to the text, not mention the gospel. I did a very comprehensive study all through the gospels every time Jesus came into town, which of these three, and there's no repeatable pattern. It's all over the place. So it was somewhat random. Nah, be careful of random. Jesus was never random. He was very purposeful. And we're going to get back to that in just a second. So you have these three. Now the problem is, if you work in third world countries, you work in South Africa, uh, like we have for years, this is much more what it looks like. And anybody who's been involved with compassion ministry or mercy ministry knows, oh my goodness, this eats up all of your time. Um, we were called out in September um, which is the end of winter in South Africa, to a place we were in Kwamshlanga. Kwamshlanga is a kind of a semi-rural area, but there are hundreds of thousands of people living in this one area. And um, while we were there visiting an orphan care center, they got a call, please come up to this hill. There's, there's, a, there's some kids that have been begging for food. Now understand, please, South Africa, we have 16 million people. 4.5 million of those are orphans. That's one in four. A child becomes an orphan every 23 seconds in South Africa. 
Now, 16 million children, 63% of those children do not live with their parents. We got a very dysfunctional society. Got a lot going for it, but got a lot going against it as well. So there's a lot of work to be done. So compassion ministry is a big part. So we were told, come out. And so we went out to this little shack out of the end of all the shacks. And there was an eight-year-old girl. And she was holding kind of about, about a month, maybe two-month-old baby. And her name was Rosie. And beside her was her five-year-old sister, Tembi. And beside her was a little two, three-year-old boy named um, Tutuzi. And then she was carrying this baby. The children had never known their father. Their mother had left six months, months earlier to go down to Pretoria to seek work and was going to somehow send them back food or money. But nothing was happening. Inside of the shack was clothing that was maybe five, six inches deep. There was no furniture. They just slept on that, ate on that, and lived. The baby had no diapers, no nappies. Nappies, diapers. Um, we asked, I mean, Rosie couldn't have the baby, so whose baby was this? This was her sister's baby, about 16, 17-year-old girl. She had left three days earlier and left an eight-year-old Rosie with the baby. No food, no nappies. And men were coming in the night and hurting Rosie. Now, just give them the gospel, huh? You see what happens? You've got a situation where people are near to death and disease, and you can't just simply give them the gospel message. As important and as much of a priority as the gospel message is. So we put them in the pickup trucks, and we go back to the orphan care center, and we get them diapers, and we get them food, and but you know what? I can't tell you today what happened to Rosie because they were in the Mountain View Village and that was outside of the, the, the realm of this orphan care center that was already caring for 100 children every day. So this can eat up all of your time, the starvation, the disease, the physical needs can overwhelm you. So many believers in ministries to orphans and refugees and human trafficking get burned out from the demands of those ministries. It's called compassion fatigue. And then they realize they haven't shared the gospel with anyone. So what's the answer? The answer lies in another passage of the scripture in Mark 1, verses 35 to 38. Let's take a look. It says, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, that's Jesus, departed to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said, everyone is looking for you. <laughs> That's the way it is. And he said to them, let's go to the next towns that I may preach. There's that word, the gospel, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. The first thing we see is in verse 35. He prayed. Very, very important piece of the puzzle. And so right in the middle of the cord, I'm going to put a golden cord right in the center. Because in order to keep these three things in balance, you have to be a person committed to prayer. Our job is to do the Father's will and not to meet needs. You're like, okay, whatever. No, no, no. This is so, this is such a life-saving principle. Guys, maybe you never noticed it, but Jesus, when he went into a town, went into this town, but he did not go into that town. It's very interesting, and I, I puzzle, 
about God's purposes and Jesus' purposes. I mean, was Jesus not God in human flesh? Did he not have access to omnipotence? Yes. Why didn't he raise his right hand and say, Judea, be healed? And all of a sudden, everybody be healed. It would make ministry a whole lot shorter and simpler. He could have then just laid in the shade of the palm tree, sipping a mint julep or something, you know? Galilee be healed. Samaria be healed. And there it is. It's all done. Let's sit down and take a nap. No, what is this going from village to village and person to person and talking with people and seeing if they had faith? And Well, Jesus was modeling ministry for us because we couldn't do that massive other stuff. He was showing us the way. But it's also important to realize that when Jesus went into this town, he did not go into this town. There were people in that town whose needs he never met. 4.5 million children. And I'll tell you guys, when you go to one of these African primary schools and they're just energy and children all over the place in their beautiful uniforms with their beautiful brown skin and they come up with these shiny white teeth and you're like, I love these kids. This is amazing. And then you realize that maybe a third of them are orphans and maybe a third of that third have HIV. And your heart just starts to break and you start to tremble. My wife grew up in Norway, a socialist country where everybody's, you know, the government takes care of everybody. Where if you can't afford to paint your house, the government will paint it for you in Norway. Not in Africa. In Africa, there's hardly any social benefits. You do not, eat, you do not work, you will die of starvation. And so you see these children and you just, you start to tremble and you're like, there are 4.2, 4.5 million children how can we? We can't. You can't meet the need. It is impossible for you to meet the need. God has not called you to meet the need. God has called you to do the Father's will. That's it. So you look through John and you'll see, I don't, Jesus saying, I do not do my own works, but whatever the Father gives me, that's what I do. I do not speak my own words, but whatever the Father gives me, that's what I speak. This is why he spent so much time in prayer. Because prayer aligns our thoughts and our priorities and our next steps with God's. In addition to the priority of prayer, there's also the priority of the gospel message. And we see that further down in verse 38. Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. So giving the gospel was Jesus' priority. He did these other things. These other things are good. But the fact is, food can help for hours. The gospel changes an eternal destiny. Compassion and moral teaching turn up the volume on the gospel, though. If you start to reach out, for instance, some missionaries, I think I've already mentioned here in this conference about digging wells or about water purification systems. When you send teens out on a short-term mission trip, they paint church buildings. What is that? You're, you're showing compassion. You're helping the poor and the needy in physical, tangible ways. You could do that here in Edgewood. I don't know what the needy population is or where they are. Those people, the other people. There's always this gypsy element somewhere near us. People that we don't like. People that we would worry about if they walked in and joined us here for a Sunday morning service. They are out there. We can reach them with the gospel. Often the rejected people, the poor and the needy, are the ones that respond the quickest to the gospel. Because they're shocked to see that anyone loves them enough to talk to them or that God loves them. The other thing is ethical teaching. Uh, one of the things that 
uh, with moral teaching, you're like, I don't know sure how this works. Here's a classic example. Uh, we had a guy that, uh, I don't know if we led him to the Lord or whatever, we discipled him. His name is Dave Wilson in South Africa. And he began a, uh, a curriculum called Men of Character. He's a businessman, but he decided to develop men of character to go into public schools and teach guys about character and life choices and how to become a leader and all of this stuff. And it was all Christian-esque. It was all that which the public school would not mind. And he was training these young guys. And of course, in the conversation, eventually he'd work in spiritual principle, like a lot of leadership books out there, and would move in on spiritual things. Karen and I were involved in uh, three different church plants. I think two or perhaps three of those church plants, we ran a parenting course. Put a sign out by the road, parenting course. You know, come. Um, right now, our, our home church down in Atlanta, our son is involved with the pastor in teaching a parenting course. Neat to see that in the second generation. What is that? It's scratching the itch of the community. I have children. I don't know what to do with them. I might kill them. So I need some kind of parenting course. So you're, you're teaching them moral teaching, growing kids God's way, or something like that. You're teaching moral principles. But through that, you have an opportunity in scratching their itch to talk to them about the gospel. And oftentimes they would join our church and their lives were transformed. Their families were transformed. So these other things can help turn up the volume on the gospel. So the gospel message has the priority, but gospel ministry involves all of these three things guided and directed by prayer. Israel's revival, virtually every time God nailed Israel, and if you read through the prophets in the Old Testament, you're going to see this theme over and over again. In fact, if you turn over quickly to Isaiah chapter 1, go to Isaiah chapter 1. Now, we like verse 18. Isaiah 118, we love this because it's just so wonderful. It has to do with our salvation. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Isn't that great? I mean, every time I see snow, snow can make a junkyard look nice. It just covers everything, you know? That's the righteousness of our God through Christ. It just covers all the junk in our lives. Woo, man, gotta love snow. If you hate snow, you need to repent, okay? Ah. But 18 is not the beginning of the passage. Yeah, early verses, God is just through. Isaiah is just ripping into them. You guys are spiritually sick. The whole head is sick. Wounds, bruises, putrefying sores. And he's using all kinds of terminologies. Just woo in verses 5 and in verse 6. And you'd think the transition comes in verse 18, but it doesn't. Verse 15 is the end of the bad news. When you spread out your hands worshiping, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. That's really dark. Then... He transitions in verse 16, and look what he says. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause, come now, let us reason together. You see the connection? God says, I will judge your repentance 
by how you treat the weakest and the poorest among you. And this is a theme all the way through the Old Testament. So I ask churches this, how much does God owe you? And you'd say, oh, nothing. I owe God everything. Okay. Here's a verse out of Proverbs. He who gives to the poor lendeth to the Lord, and the Lord will repay him for all he has given. How much does God owe you? It's weird. All the way through the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, God connects himself with those in prison, those who need water, those who need food. And when you afflict the fatherless, the widow, the poor, you are actually offending God. It's amazing how he connects himself with these people as a theme all the way through the scripture. The early church followed this model, not just revived Israel, but when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, Peter starts preaching. Look at verses 42 to 47. What are you going to see? And they said that, you know, none of what they possessed was theirs, but they liquidated assets and started sharing as anyone had need. Chapter 4, same thing is happening. Paul is called by God as an apostle to the Gentiles. And the church council calls him in and they want to hear about what God's doing and whether this is really of God. And, and Paul says in Galatians, they sent us out asking only that we should remember the poor, which we were also eager to do. So the church, even the church, set this up and followed this model of a balanced threefold cord of ministry. The heart of it, the priority was the gospel message. But also there was ethical teachings and also there was compassion ministry. And so on. The revived churches through the centuries follow this model. Ah, when you get into the Protestant Reformation, that wasn't really a revival. It was a, it was a restoration of correct doctrine. But a lot of the Lutherans ended up just as wicked and ungodly as their Catholic forebearers or parallels. And finally, there came about 100 years later what was known as the, the pietist movement. They said, you know what? We need to study the Bible, huh? And we can do it outside of a church building. What? We can have home Bible studies. We need to have a, a personal relationship with God. It was like, what? And this spread all through Europe, the pietist movement. And guess what? Orphanages started springing up. Compassion ministries started springing up because God's people were getting revived. You say, well, brother, I believe preaching is the most important. True. All right, let's take the best preacher, what is considered the best preacher of all time, Jeff Colder. No, uh, about 100 years, 120 years earlier, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Jeff Colder kind of looks a little bit like Spurgeon these days. Spurgeon was known as the prince of preachers. Guys, listen to me. 63 compassion ministries connected with Spurgeon's church. He had an animal shelter. And I can see you ladies. Oh, I'll take that ministry for cats and dogs, SBCA kind of thing. You know about William Wilberforce, right? A member of parliament, a great preacher, but also for the slave and began the SPCA and did a whole lot of other things regarding compassion ministry. So what happened to this beautiful diagram? Something happened right after Spurgeon. It was known as liberalism in the late 1800s. 
It was kind of a scientific attack on theologies. Uh, kind of almost like atheists started teaching theology. And so what they did was the model changed and the mainline liberal churches rejected the gospel message. What they did was they redefined sin as not, not moral depravity and, and you offending God by breaking his law. Sin was poverty. Sin was ignorance. Disease, that's sin. And so you got guys out there who, you know, they, they redefine the gospel as these two things, moral teaching and compassion ministry. It's such that, give me, about five years ago, there was this new young millennial guy into social justice and everything. He was working in Italy. And he told one of our missionaries, dude, I got to share the gospel with a guy today. Really? Tell me what happened. Well, he was kind of like this old bum on the side of the road. And I could tell he hadn't eaten in a long time. And, and so uh, I bought him a sandwich. And I sat there and, you know, it was really cool. And so what did you share with him? Nothing. I bought him a sandwich. Yeah, but you said you had a good gospel opportunity. Yeah, that was it, man. He didn't have to be hungry anymore. Good news. That's the, that's the redemption that God brings. And our missionary's like, I'm going to kill you. He didn't. The sandwich was the gospel. Do you understand? So if you're from a mainline church background, and I have talked about this in several places and had a lot of folks come up to me and like tell, telling me about their church. If you're from this kind of liberal church background, you, heard, you learned two things growing up. Number one, you need to be a good person. And number two, you need to help your fellow man. Huh? That's the least we can do. You need to be a good person and you need to help your fellow man. And if you ask him, are you going to heaven when you die? Well, yeah, I've been a really good person and I've helped my fellow man. That is what the gospel is to them. This is known as the social gospel, okay? You've heard of it perhaps before. Now, we got another problem. It's not like, well, come to our Bible preaching churches. We'll show you how it's done. No, actually, we messed up as well. This is the way we made it look. Evangelical churches didn't want to be like the liberals. And so what they did was they dropped compassion ministry and focused on the gospel and moral teaching. And so most churches that you'll go to that are Bible churches today, you will tend to hear the gospel and you'll tend to hear the ways that we should glorify God by holy living. And the third theme is prophecy. You'll hear about uh, the future. You won't hear about now and you won't hear about engaging the culture and you won't really hear a whole lot about social justice. And so we've gotten an imbalance. In fact, in church history books now, this is known as the great reversal. And just like the liberals left out an element of the threefold cord, the fundamentalists and the evangelicals have left out an element of the threefold cord. And we need to bring the balance back. Well, fine to talk about church history, but let's go to meddling. How about you? Jesus did gospel ministry. He said, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Go and make disciples. So are you doing any part of gospel ministry? I'm not talking about Edgewood Bible. I'm talking about you and your family. Are you sharing the gospel with people because you're a Christian? Are you involved in moral teaching? Moms and dads with little kids, you are involved in all three of these, <laughs> just so you know. And that doesn't mean you're off the hook. 
okay? But these little lost people running around between your legs, they need to hear the gospel. You're giving them lots of moral teaching. And when they uh, hurt themselves and they have needs, you meet their needs. Um, you're involved in compassion ministry. But how about adults? How about people all around us? And collectively, as Edgewood Bible, do we have a balance between these three things? Guided by prayer and keeping the gospel as the priority. It's just something to think about. Because we can get very comfortable in the gospel message and moral teaching as a church. And we can forget about compassion ministry and reaching out and touching other people. Or are we working hard to get things that will all burn one day? The fact is God has called all of us to be like Jesus. And Jesus was involved with this threefold cord of gospel ministry. Well, let's turn the tables. I'm hammering you. How about my team? My team, Seven Rivers Outreach. When you look at it from Google Earth, this is what it looks like in the valley. Maybe you'll come visit us sometime. It's a 100-acre farm on the Seven Rivers Farm. We're planting the Intebeni Church there. We are hoping the pastor, Ayanda, is there on location. He and his wife, his wife is a nurse, and they are working to do gardening and different income-generating projects so that he can actually earn a living. In Africa, there tends to be two rules of thumb as far as a church, an African church that teaches the Bible surviving. Number one, you have to have connections with Americans to get money from them. Or two, you have to teach the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel and bully your people into giving lots of money so that God can bless them. And those types of churches tend to survive. But to get an African church that is like Edgewood is supported by the offerings of the people within the church, very difficult to find. So we need to have more bivocational pastors. And so we're setting up Ayanda and his wife to generate income from this farm. This is it. We were walking up the hill. Uh, the bottom of the farm is at 500 feet. Top, top of the farm is at 1,000 feet. And if you're up on top of that hill, you can see the Indian Ocean from there. Beautiful place. And that's where the farm is right there. Got about 150 macadamia nut trees growing. Got beehives trying to in generate income from right there on the farm. As we do it, we'll expand and we'll build one home that can hold a Zulu Christian couple and then put six to eight orphans in with them in their foster care to create a forever home for those kids so they don't have to keep shuffling them around different places within the foster care system. That's what it looks like. Beautiful. It's uh, much greener now. Um, lots of chickens. Chickens produce eggs. Chickens produce chicken. And uh, it's a funny thing about chickens. Praise God for chickens. What would we have done without them? Uh, chickens also keep down snakes. Just in case you were too eager to visit, we have the three deadliest snakes in the world in this area. The black mamba, the green mamba, spitting cobra, and the puff adder, fourth. And we have four of them. We haven't seen many of them. They get kind of nasty, you know, nasty piece of work. The, uh, the, the gray mamba, the black mamba, has a black inside of its mouth, but it can get a, a good 15, 20 feet long if it's a, an older one. And they can move at about 35 miles an hour. So if you're hoping to outrun it, forget it. And yes, they do climb trees, and they can get aggressive. So. But the last time we saw anything of appreciable size on the property was about three, four years ago. So we're doing all right. Have chickens, they eat small snakes. We also could get pigs, because pig, snakes don't like pigs. Pigs are hard to take care of, though. 
So the other thing is sage and lavender. We can plant that. Snakes don't like herbs that smell because then they smell when they go through them. So we're going to have lavender everywhere. Uh, and we'd whack the grass to keep the grass low because they like tall grass. So there's the river, uh, Seven Rivers and Scott Kemp, one of the guys on our team. That is a road passing through the river. And you see, uh, see the little stones on the right-hand side. If the water's above that, you probably shouldn't drive through. Some of our guys tried to drive through after some rains. Sometimes you can't get to the farm for two or three days. Um, so we're saving up money for a four-by-four going in here. But we have, we've had guys going in with Jeeps in four-by-four mode with the water splashing up over the hood. Just a little bit risky. So better just to stay on the farm. So you keep stores of food there. And uh, girls, some of you girls are wearing your necklaces this morning. Well done. And you're like, these are the beads. And these are the girls that made your necklaces. Now, these are the beads from the grass that are in the river, the little gray beads. And they're all gone now. Sorry, uh, people have bought them and scooped them up. So, um, but these ladies, we are teaching them. We're giving them, getting them the money, the proceeds from the sale. But we have a whole budget. Because in the Zulu language, guys, there's no word for future. Can you imagine the mindset? They're hunter-gatherers for two millennia. We kill today and we eat today what we have today. And tomorrow is another day. So they have the word for tomorrow. And tomorrow is tomorrow. And that's it. So to teach them budgeting for a month out, two months out, they just can't get their minds around it. So that's part of our training as well. So our team, this is the GG2, what we are involved with as we head back so that you know as a church. And by the way, thanks for taking us on for support. Um, and I know it's a chunk of change and I know it's sacrifice on your part. But thanks, I think we're your most recently supported missionaries. Hopefully we'll behave ourselves. The good thing is we are old. We're going back at 58, so we'll probably drop dead not too long. So your support commitment isn't like a really long-range thing, you know? So, Zulu Evangelism, Bible Studies, and Church Planting. An accredited seminary for Zulu men and women. Mobile training for pastors. Our seminary has no building and no property. We are professors on wheels. Uh, so we have uh, two guys with doctorates, three guys with master's degrees, and... I don't like ivory tower theology. I just hate it. So we are going to go into the African context of ministry. We're going into the townships. We're going into the villages. And we're going to spend lots of time with them through the day. And we're going to live life with them. And then in the afternoon, maybe from 4 to 7, we'll have Bible classes. And we'll run those classes every day for a period of a couple of weeks. And then we'll come back later. And we'll be rotating between all of these church plants. So we're avoiding the, uh, the infrastructure problem of keeping up buildings and things. We're just using the know-how God has given us. And part of my ministry is not only training these guys, but training Americans who come over to understand the African worldview and the way Africans think. Because it's dramatically different, and missionaries have not done it correct for about 150 years. We've just given them Christianity, and they've kind of worked it in to their African worldview. So for instance, the word for God in Zulu is nkulunkulu. Well, I am a grandfather, Nkulu. So Nkulunkulu is the father of our grandfathers. And when you start talking to Africans, you, I talked to some teenage young people coming out of high school. And I said, well, tell, let me ask you a question. If your little sister, eight years old, is sick and she's almost going to die, who would you pray to first, God or the ancestors? Because the ancestors, everything. And they said, oh, we'd pray to both. I said, who would you pray to first? 
the ancestors. But isn't God more powerful than the ancestors? Oh, yes. Why wouldn't you pray to God? He is not here. He has gone on a long journey. Their view is that God is like Adam, the first man to walk the earth. He now has a blanket over his shoulder and a water bottle, and he is walking. I don't know how far away he is, but he knows nothing of what's happening on the earth with humankind. Now, if you just tell them, God loves you, that just kind of doesn't compute. Their whole idea of God is skewed, so we've got to get into that worldview. So, an orphan village on a 100-acre farm. That is uh, a big love of some people. This is new. We understand there's one other ministry near Cape Town that's trying this. The tendency is, hey, have you heard about such and such an orphanage? Yes, they ask for $8,000 a month in order to keep their orphanage going. We're trying to invest in the infrastructure, and then that thing's got to support itself. So that if anything happens with charitable funding, um, they can still keep going. Entrepreneurship and job skills training, community health, food, and clothing evangelism. We don't just give stuff away. We have them earn it because it gives them dignity as opposed to giving, which only underscores that they're takers. And then community education assistance. So there's the gospel, obviously. Bible studies are, when you study theology in the Bible, that's expanding the gospel out in a big picture. So gospel and, and uh, moral teaching is part of the seminary. Gospel and moral teaching is also training for the pastors. The orphan village is solidly a compassion ministry. Entrepreneurship and job skills training, also a compassion ministry. Community health, food, and clothing evangelism, we're mixing the gospel together. For instance, one thing that's really cool, um, which really ties into education assistance, there's a new version of the Zulu Bible coming out, praise the Lord, in 2020. The last, the current copy of the Zulu Bible was translated in the 1800s by British missionaries who knew Zulu for about four years. The Zulu can't even read their own Bible. They can't understand it. So there's a new guy. He's an evangelical Lutheran. He knows Greek, Hebrew, and Zulu. And so he's creating a new Bible. So we are going to be buying thousands of Bibles, not giving them away, but saying we are having a public reading of the Gospel of John. If you come, you will earn Five points toward getting a Bible. And then we will have a public reading of the epistle to the Colossians. And if you sit through that, you'll get another five points. Ten points gets you your own copy of the Zulu Bible. So we're going to have them listen and read through and have breakout dialogue, talking sessions afterwards to make sure that they understand it. So exciting, exciting times coming up. And our passage concludes, and our missions conference concludes with Matthew 9, 38. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And that is so true. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And he says, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Don't put people on a guilt trip. Don't whip them into some kind of emotional frenzy. Pray. And so I do on my face every morning, Lord of harvest, I'm a co-laborer together with you. Use me to bring out more laborers into the harvest because there's much to do. 
God will do it with or without the American church. We've seen that already. But we are privileged to be a part of this great thing called the gospel of Jesus Christ in this age until the final harvest is brought in and his son comes back. Many of the church, churches in the southern and eastern hemispheres believe that we are in the last generation. There's not much time, still work to do. So pray about it. Let's close in prayer. God, our Father, thank you for Jesus, your precious son, you in human flesh. Thank you for his death, certainly, for us, his resurrection, for our justification. But thank you as well for his teaching and thank you for his model of ministry that he modeled. He, he gave us a ministry that we could imitate. And so I pray that you would help us to be like Jesus, not just in holiness, but also in this threefold court of ministry. I pray for Edgewood that you would help them to contemplate how they can maybe bring a better balance among these three to the outreach here at Edgewood and surrounding towns. For our missionaries as well, that they would keep it in balance if they're involved in compassion ministry to remember to pray and to be guided by your spirit and that priority of the gospel. And so, Father, thank you for the privilege of being co-laborers together with you no matter where you call us to. Thank you that as these believers go out from here tomorrow, they can live on mission. But thank you also for those who are willing to leave and to be sent out by their churches into cross-cultural ministry for the sake of the gospel around the world. Thanks for our time together this weekend. I have completed my stewardship, Father, as your servant. I have entrusted this truth to these people. And they are now accountable to you for what they do with it. And so I pray that you would help them to not be the same. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.